This is the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. During the winter of 2022 and 2023, we're studying the first 11 chapters of John. Now, don't worry, we will finish our study of John. We'll look at the second half of John during the spring months, but right now we're focusing just on those first 11 chapters. I'm Dwayne McCreary, your host, and today I'm being joined by Bob Bunn. Bob was with us for the Christmas lesson, so Bob, thank you for being back with us as we look at this particular session, session six. We'll be looking at John chapter four, verses 11 through 26. We've outlined it. There's four outline points this week. Usually there's three, but there's four for this particular study. The first one comes from verses 11 through 15 of chapter four. And we've just listed it as a question. Thirst quenched. Engaging in conversation with a Samaritan woman about a drink of water. The conversation shifted as she responded to Jesus's comments about living water. She questioned Jesus about his living water since he did not have a bucket to retrieve water from the well. Jesus explained that what he was offering would eternally quench a person's thirst and function as a spring that produced eternal life. The woman requested that Jesus give her this water, not understanding the ramifications of what she was asking. The main point here is that people find lasting spiritual satisfaction only in Jesus. The second point deals with verses 14 through 20 of chapter 4 of John. We've entitled it Sin Exposed. In these verses, Jesus directed the woman to call her husband, to which she replied that she had no husband. Jesus recounted her five marriages and noted that she was now living with a sixth man who was not her husband. The woman redirected the conversation focusing on the correct location for worship. For us, we can understand that admitting our sin is the first step toward salvation. The third point we've entitled true worship, and that comes from John chapter four, verses 21 through 24. In these verses, Jesus declared that the the debate about the location of worship was irrelevant. He framed the old debate in terms of salvation coming from the Jews and that the time of that salvation was now present. In this new hour, worshipers would approach God in spirit and truth, independent of any specific location. Of course, the key point for us is that believers must worship God in spirit and truth. The last point, of our outline, True Faith, looks at verses 25 and 26. Here, the woman acknowledged that when the Messiah came, he would explain everything. Jesus then proclaimed that the one she was speaking to is the Messiah. What we can walk away with is that believers find eternal satisfaction through faith in the promised Messiah. So, Bob, there's a lot of cultural history in the background Uh, of this passage, a woman, a Samaritan, uh, divorced multiple times, now living with someone who's not her husband. I mean, all kinds of things that we could get stuck in. How can we help the group understand the background 
and still have time to examine the main emphasis of this passage. You're right. There's a lot going on uh, with this passage and with this story. And uh, that makes context really important. I'm, I'm huge on context. I always like to, to know the context, I like to share the context when I'm teaching. I want to make sure that, that the folks understand the context because that, that, that the context is what helps you move from the purpose of the 20 in the, in the first century to how do I apply that in the 21st century without the context. Sometimes you just can't really make that connection. So uh, there's a lot going on. And, and the truth is it would be tempting for some of us to say, well, these, you know, this is a familiar story. This is something everybody knows. This is, you know, I have to dig too much into this, but the truth is you may have folks in your class who've never heard this story before or who don't know what a Samaritan is to know, uh, you know, why this was such a big deal. Uh, that Jesus made this stop at this well at this time with this woman. Uh, so always be careful about sharing the context. Now, I, if it was me, I think I would focus on two things when it comes to context. One of them is the origin of the Samaritans. Where do they come from? Why, why were they so mad at the Jews and why were the Jews so mad at them? Why, what was this disruption? Why, why this tension going on? Uh, that's important to know where these people came from. Uh, and and why they were always at odds with with the Jew, with their Jewish neighbors. And it's funny because if you look at a map of the ancient world, you had Galilee in the north, you had Judea in the south, both Jewish strongholds, and Samaria was stuck right in the middle, <laughs> literally right in the middle of these two Jewish factions. And so it, it was it was an awkward situation a lot of times. So why? What was the, what was the source of that? The other thing I would think uh, I think I would emphasize is take a look at some of the cultural walls that Jesus broke down through this conversation with this woman. Um, you mentioned some of them a minute ago. It, it was unusual for him to talk to a woman in the middle of the day without her husband present. Of course, you know, she didn't have a husband, so that was another matter. Which it's another matter altogether. The fact that she was a Samaritan. The fact that he was actually in Samaria, which most Jews would have gone the long way around the Jordan River to avoid. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria. Jesus not only walked there, he camped out there and, and sat as well and had this conversation. Now, the fact that, um, you know, that, that all these things come together, all these different factors, all these walls that, that, that people had built up over time. There was a difference in religion, a difference in theology, uh, what, they, what Samaritans believed and what Jews uh, believe were somewhat related, but diametrically opposed to one another. <laughs> and so, um, you know, at the same time, so take a look at what all these, what those kind of things meant and why that's important. And the reason that's important is because number one, we have Samaritans in our own world. We may not like to admit it, but there are people we just assume avoid. <laughs> and there are people that maybe we even despise and look down on and we, we condescend on them. And so, you know, who are those people in our lives and what can we learn from the way Jesus reached out to someone who was, who was in that situation in the first century? Um, yeah, how do we do that? Who are the 21st century Samaritans? Um, and, and how do we break down walls? How do we, how do we get beyond ourselves uh, in, in, a, in a world that, that wants to separate people? It's amazing that we hear a lot about tolerance and we hear a lot about diversity and we hear a lot about, uh, you know, getting, getting, bringing people together. But the truth is that we live in a, in a very divided culture and uh, there are a lot of walls that separate us, even from one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do we do to break down some of those walls? 
within the church and even outside the church. Those are things that, that, that are important and have application for all, us today. So those are a couple of the things I think I would, I would focus on. This is one of those situations where the understanding the context pages in the leader guide and in the personal study guide can, can help a lot because uh, they cover a lot of these things in both of the resources this, for this lesson. Both of them explain some of these, the cultural background, where they came, where the Samaritans came from, and also some of the, some of the cultural walls that Jesus broke down. Uh, I'd also mention the pack item 12, if you get our pack and, and can use that, has a, has a great pack item uh, that, that talks about the Jews and the, and the Samaritans. And it, it goes into the history of how these, how these two races uh, came to be and, how, and why they didn't like each other very much. So that kind of resource can, can be helpful too. But it, it, at the risk of not going off into a bunch of rabbit trails uh, that you could chase for, from, you know, and, and waste a lot of valuable time in your class, I think those are the two things that I would really focus on. You mentioned pack item 12. And it's entitled Jews and Samaritans, and it gives that historical background to it. What I found interesting in preparing for our time today was that in QuickSource, in the Dig Deeper feature in QuickSource, the section there is entitled Jesus and Samaritans. And it, it is a contrast between how the Jews dealt with Samaritans and how Jesus dealt with Samaritans. You know, you and I were talking before we started recording. We don't know if we intended to do that, but we're glad we did. Yes. Because it does show that contrast between how the average Jewish person in the in that day related to Samaritans and how Jesus did. One of the the the, the lines that stood out in the quick source statement was that Jesus made a deliberate choice to interact with people that Jews despised or avoided. I added the word avoided, but um it was a deliberate choice to interact with these people made by Jesus while the Jews made a deliberate choice to not interact with them, to avoid exactly. them at all cost. Um, the, the woman points to the location of worship so in, in, in her response. Um, why was the location of worship a big deal at all? Well, if you read the entire story, you, you come to the conclusion that it really shouldn't have been a big deal uh, because that, that it was only a big deal if you didn't understand who the Messiah was and what what he had come to do. And Jesus will get to that in a minute. But you know, it, there was this distinction. One of the one of the things that that really separated Jews and and Samaritans, uh, one of those those cultural differences that we talked about, was the site of worship. Uh, they both looked to different mountains. Um, if you want to look at it that way. In Samaria, there's a mountain called Mount Gerizim. Uh, it was probably very close to the city of Sychar where they were having this conversation by the well, and you could probably see it from the well, uh, most scholars believe. And so in, for, for Samaritans, Gerizim was the place. Uh, it was the place that, uh, that represented all that, that their religion uh, held valuable. Uh, it was the place where the Messiah was going to come. And they, they believed that the Messiah was going to come to Mount Gerizim and he was going to make everything all right. And he was going to, in some ways, he was going to put the Jews back in their place. <laughs> so it was a big deal for them. Uh, really, it was, it was a lot of their national identity was based on Mount Gerizim and what they believed was going to happen to Mount Gerizim. They couldn't, they, they, didn't, they didn't exist as a people. Their identity was so wrapped up in this 
that if if they were wrong, then they had no reason to exist as a, as a nation, as a race. And so that's one of the reasons it was a big deal for them is because their their national identity was was so closely tied to it. For the Jews, uh, it was important because they believed they were right and they could prove the Samaritans wrong. <laughs> and in a sense, they were they were. Uh, they had been the ones who had received the law. They had been the ones that had uh, that God had told to build the temple in in Jerusalem, and that was supposed to be the place of worship. Um, it was only centuries later that that some of that changed. But um, you know, the, even though they were right, they went about it the wrong way. <laughs> if you want to put that, if you want to think about it that way, um, their their desire to be right was was fueled by arrogance and racism and pride, and so um, you know they. They were right, but they were wrong in the way they were right, if that makes sense. Uh, and, and so it was just one of those key things that 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 caused the Samaritans and the Jews to have tension, to to butt heads, uh, to to hate one another. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, it doesn't matter where you are. It's not this mountain or that mountain. It's not Gerizim or Mount Zion. It's or, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And this is really something for the Jews, especially, they should have known that. They should have already understood that because they had gone into exile in Babylon for 70 years. And God had specifically told them through the prophet Ezekiel and through other prophets that, hey, I'm going to be with you, even though you're not in Jerusalem anymore. And in, in some ways, if you read through Ezekiel, you realize that, that God's presence was really with the with the exiles in Babylon. And he had rejected a lot of the people who, were, who had been left behind in Jerusalem. And we studied Ezekiel and Daniel a couple quarters ago, and uh, and and that was one of the lessons that that we took from those from that book, that God was always with them, and so they should have realized that God wasn't tied to a particular location, but they were so wrapped up in the temple culture, and their in some ways their identity was tied to the temple, just like the Samaritans' identity was tied to Gerizim, and so they lost sight of that. And so when Jesus comes along and says, hey, it doesn't matter where you are, God is with you anyway, and you can worship him in spirit and truth no matter what, that would have been a revolutionary concept both to both Jews and Samaritans. But that was really the point Jesus was trying to drive home. You mentioned that idea of worshiping with spirit and truth. Are there examples of worshiping without spirit and truth? <laughs> yeah, really. Sometimes it's easier for us to know what it what it's not so we can identify what it really is. Yeah. Yeah. The answer is sort of a yes and no. Uh, there are no examples of worshiping without spirit and truth because you don't, you can't really worship unless you worship in spirit and truth. You know, if that makes sense, you can't have one without the other. If you don't have spirit and truth then you're not, you're not really worshiping. So in a broad sense, no, there are no examples of worshiping without spirit and truth. Now the truth is we try. <laughs> and I think there's two, two ways that we do that even today. Um, and we, we, we can swing from one pendulum side of the pendulum to the other, but one of the ways that we do that is we just, we work, we, and I use the term worship in air quotes, I'm making air quotes with my fingers uh -huh. as I say this, we worship with passivity. We sit and we come and we check something off a list and we say, okay, I've, I've sat in the pew. I've heard the sermon. Uh, I've, you know, I've done my duty, uh, for the day. And, you know, I'm good until next Sunday. And so we don't really engage with God. We don't engage with the scriptures. We don't engage with other believers. 
Um, we just kind of, we just sit up, take up space and breathe air. And, and God says, if you do that, you're not really worshiping. You're certainly not worshiping in spirit and truth. There's nothing there. There's no substance to it. Uh, so that's one way that we do it. And, and we get caught doing that a lot. Uh, even the best of us, I think, get caught in that trap sometimes. The other side of that spectrum is that we, is that we don't worship in spirit and truth because we're so busy. It's not that we don't do anything. It's not that we're passive. It's that we're, we're just trying to, you know, trying to go, 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 go. And that's sort of a legalistic mentality where if I do a little bit more, then God will accept my worship. If I do a little bit more, God will accept my worship as genuine, accept it as real. And God sometimes just says, hey, slow down. It's the, it's the Martha concept, the Martha mentality, you know, with Mary and Martha, where Mary's at Jesus' feet trying to soak it all in. And Martha's busy doing 100 million things. We tend to, we have a lot of Marthas. And sometimes we, we applaud the Marthas sometimes, uh, or we applaud ourselves for being a Martha because we just, it just feels right. You know, it feels like what we ought to be doing as Christians, that we ought to, you know, this, this is a sacrifice I'm making for God. When in reality, the sacrifice he wants us to make is to sit down and be quiet and listen <laughs> and hear what he has to say. But yeah. e either, either one of those is dangerous. They're, they're at opposite ends of the poles, but they're both very, very dangerous. And both of them represent an attempt to worship without spirit truth. Yeah, Jesus mentions here, too, about living water. The, the Bible skill encourages us to examine Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah 17.13, Zechariah 4.14.8. John 7, 37 through 39, and in Revelation 7, 17, all of which deal with living water in some form or fashion. And we're encouraged to look at that, those verses, uh, see what we can gain from those, and then write a one-sentence summary based on what we've examined. Um, before we discuss the living water references there, Bob, I would encourage our, our listeners. I know that's one, two, three, five verses in That'll take a little bit of time for someone to find it, read it, and then you you go to the next person. Uh, some ideas there, you may want to assign those prior to the group time so folks can be ready to read those passages or you have them marked. Another way of doing it is when they enter the classroom, have those on index cards, just a reference, and ask five different people to find that passage and just put that index card there so when you get to that point in the, the group time you could do that uh, both of those are good ways of doing it a third way that may be a possibility is you take these five verses and not just the reference but the actual text from the the, the passages as well and create a handout that has the passage and that text from that passage all listed and you just hand use that as a handout to give out to the group when you get to that point. Now, I know they won't be looking through their Bible trying to find that specific verse, but it will give them a, a way and you a way to do this in an effective way where they can at least look at those passages. They can have them on that handout, look at those passages, and then you can do the Bible skill and then encourage them after the group time's over. Uh, to go to their Bible and look at those verses, look at the context around those verses, get a deeper understanding of how those verses connect with living water. But that is a way to use the Bible skill, to do that Bible skill in an effective way. But I mentioned these references. How do they help us explain this term, uh, 
And I know there's other references too. this idea of living water. Mm-hmm. One place you start is we go back to the cultural differences between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, something we have to understand is that Jews would have, they would have picked up on the idea of living water. Jesus used it in John chapter seven, and they understood exactly what he was talking about. They understood it as a messianic reference um, because they knew Jeremiah. They knew Zechariah. They, they, knew, they knew what had been said. Uh, Samaritans didn't have that. Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the, the, the Torah. And that was all they thought was, was inspired scripture. And so they didn't, they rejected the prophets uh, along with other parts of scripture. And so they wouldn't have been familiar with this idea of living water through the prophets as, as a Jewish person. So this was probably a brand new concept for this woman, uh, this idea of living water. So she didn't quite know what he meant. Now, lawyers always say that you don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. So you've raised a, a couple of great ideas for these folks to deal with this Bible skill. Uh, let me let me give you the answers before you ask the questions when you, as, you're, as a leader in the Sunday school class. Um, the refer- when you look at Jeremiah and you look at Zechariah, both were prophets. And if you understand that prophecy in the Old Testament took two different forms, one was basically foretelling, which was predicting the future, and one was what what some have called forthtelling, which was preaching and warning and encouraging and chastising. Jeremiah was a foreteller. He was when he used the idea of living water. He was talking about things that were happening in the present time for him. Uh, he was warning the people that they had they had basically rejected God's offer of living water, and and they needed to they needed to rethink that. They needed to repent of their sins and they needed to come back to them. Zechariah used the term living water in more of a foretelling concept. Uh, he was predicting the future. He was looking forward to a time when God would provide living water for his people and that that living water would go out and not only uh, not only flourish in Jerusalem and in, in Israel, but it would even have an impact on the countries and nations around them. Um, the, he talks about, I think it's, it's in Zechariah where he talks about uh, the rivers, one river is going to go one direction and one river is going to go the other direction and, and they're going to water the areas from sea to sea. And so, you know, he, he was talking about a future time, uh, a messianic time. And so as your as your folks look at those two passages or the three passages in those two prophets, that's a distinction that you can bring out for them is that that the foretelling and the foretelling. Um, then you have the revelation passage, which obviously is predictive. It's 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 at the end of Revelation. Um, really, the 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 vision of heaven that John has with the with the water coming out, and so you know you have that passage, um, which uh, we certainly want to connect with. Now you tie all these together, and you can in, include the the John seven and the John four passages as well. Every time that that the scripture talks about this, they're talking about eternal life. They're talking about. Um, God's provision of something special for his people. Um, and so then that's certainly what Jesus was trying to, to emphasize with the woman at the well. Uh, he was offering her something that went way beyond just a, a thirst quencher, uh, a physical thirst quencher. He was, he was wanting it to change her life forever and help her to be able to know exactly who Jesus was and who he was and what he was doing. 
So, um, you know, that's, you can, you can look at those, those different pieces of the living water puzzle and then tie them together by bringing them back to eternal life. This whole section here, what we're looking at verse through chapter uh, through verse 26, excuse me, ends with Jesus making the statement, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Um, John is marked, the gospel of John is marked as having seven different I am statements. Those began in chapter six, bread of life, light of the world, door to the sheep, resurrection and the life, good shepherd, way, truth and life in John 14. And then finally in John 15, the true vine. So you have those seven marked I am statements, but it feels like you have one here too. Um, help us get a handle on the I am passages that are traditionally pointed to. And this particular one is why it would not be one of those. <laughs> John's gospel is completely different from the other gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we typically call synoptic gospels, which means looking from the same perspective. They kind of, they look alike, you know, and they feel alike in a lot of different ways. They probably used each other as sources as they were doing their writing. John was written 30 years later and uh, takes a completely different tack on, on how he approaches the life of Jesus. He really builds his, his gospel around two things, um, what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And what Jesus did, he illustrated that through seven, um, seven signs or seven miracles. Um, and we've seen some of those, changing water to wine, walking on water, feeding the 5,000, that kind of thing. And it's going to culminate with raising Lazarus from the dead at the end of John chapter 11. But um, so that's, you know, that's part of it. It's still seven signs. The other part is what Jesus taught or what Jesus said. And he hangs all of that on these seven I am statements where he points to himself and he says, I am like this. Or I, well, he didn't say like, he says, I am this, or I am that, or I am. And he, he, he draws attention to his character and his mission and his purpose for coming to earth. Um, and you mentioned the more, some of the more common ones. I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm, I'm the true vine. And, and we'll look at some of those passages coming up in, in future studies. Uh, but this is one of those times, this and at the end of Jesus' life, and close to the end of Jesus' life, he makes a statement that he just says, I am he. Um, here he does it. I who speaks to you am he. She said, who is the Messiah? And she said, I know the Messiah is coming someday. You know, I'm, I want to be ready for him. And Jesus said, hey, I am he. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll see uh, next quarter <laughs> when we study the second half of John, uh, we'll see that, that when the mob comes to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked them, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus basically says, I am he. And it knocks them off their feet. The very power of his words saying that knocked him off his feet. So there's these there's these instances where it's not a traditional I am such I am something statement, but it, it is a, a confession to him. The question is what makes it so important? Why is this such a big deal? Well, in John chapter eight, where he says, I am the lie of the world, um, he's talking to a group of Jews. And when he says that to them, they go nuts. They go ballistic. They're, they are at the point of red. They want to take him out of the temple and they want to stone him because he said, I am the light of the world. They did that because when he says, I am, 
he actually he also said uh, as part of that he also said before Abraham was I am <laughs> and so when when he pretty, says pretty that, obvious at that yeah, point what he's yeah, talking about yeah and so when they saw when they heard that their minds automatically went back to to what we know as Exodus chapter three which is where Moses is talking to God from the burning bush and he says well when 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 the Israel when if I go back to the Israelites and they ask who sent me who am I supposed to tell them is the one that sent me and God says just tell them I am that I am have sent you so I am was God's name. God, it was God's personal name that he had given to the people of Israel. And they revered that name. They honored that name, even through the mistakes that they made and the idolatry that they committed and the exiles that they experienced. They always came back to I am being the God for them, uh, being their, their personal. It was a symbol of their personal relationship with God. So when Jesus says, I am anything. When I am he, when I am the vine, when I am the, 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 the good shepherd, when I am any of this stuff, they took I am, certainly when he said before Abraham was, I am, they took that to mean he was claiming equality with God, which of course he was, because he is. But they didn't see it that way. And so for them, that was incredible. It really was one of the things that sparked their desire to execute him and, and kill him later on, was that he claimed uh, this, took, accepted this claim on himself that he was God, um, which is something they, they just couldn't abide by. Uh, you noted the other passage that when he's arrested, uh, in a way, this in John 4 is a foreshadowing what he of what John's going to be talking about with the I am passages. And then that at his arrest, I am he serves as kind of like the end of the sandwich, the summary statement uh, with the the seven I am's in the middle, giving right. definition to what I am truly means. Yeah, they're like books. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's an important piece here. Are there other key ideas or thoughts you would share about John four before we close out this podcast? Well, one of the things we didn't, we really hadn't touched on it, but the lessons touch on it, both in the personal study guide and in the leader guide. This is this is an incredible statement of God's universal. And God's universal offer of salvation. Um, up to this point, Jesus has dealt with Jews. Uh, in the first couple of sessions that we've had in this quarter, uh, one of them focuses a lot on who Jesus is, uh, the, the prologue of John in the ministry of John the Baptist. And then we talked about how he called some of his disciples who were Jews. And then we talked about his, his conversation with Nicodemus, uh, who was a Jewish leader. This is one of those times where, as you pointed out earlier from the from the quick source resource, that this is one of the ones where Jesus intentionally made a decision to step outside what would have been a comfort zone for a lot of Jews and address a situation that that nobody else would have addressed and and with an audience that no one else would have approached. But that's really what Jesus was all about. Um, he He came for the world. He came for all. And that was going to include Samaritans. And as it turned out, if you read the rest of the story beyond what our key passage is for this lesson, he basically turned this town upside down. And he not only spent a little, a couple hours at a well, he spent days with them. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and there was a revival in this town as these people began to realize who he was and what he was about. And that was really one of the first foreshadowings, at least in the Gospel of John, that that this was going to this was going to be a big deal. This was going to reach outside of the Jewish community, and it was going to make an impact on the world at large. And it's it's really sets the foundation for who we are and who we're supposed to be today as well. 
Bob, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for sharing your insights on John 4. Before we go, let me remind our listeners about Extra. By the way, just if you're curious, Bob's the editor of Extra. But in Extra, we identify a current news event and describe a way of using that news story to introduce and conclude the group time. That file is free. And you can find these ideas on the Explore the Bible website by typing the following in your web browser. GoExploreTheBible.com forward slash leader extras. That's GoExploreTheBible.com forward slash leader extras. Thank you for listening to us today. Bob will be joining us later in our study of John. Uh, next week, Gia Thornburg will be joining us again. We'll be looking at John chapter 5, verses 5 through 16. And the main point in that study is that Jesus is Lord over all creation and values all people. Mm-hmm.